This is Guns and Butter. They came in that first day, and this is documented. They came in that late that afternoon, early evening. They terminated all rescue efforts in about three quarters of the building while they went in with a bunch of agents to take out documents, file cabinets, and who knows what. What it was, we don't know, but it's documented by observers in the press and others that that did occur, and we've got some documents that show that in here. We'd certainly like to know what they took out of there. Evidently, the FBI thought that the documents were important enough, so important that they literally were stepping over people buried under rubble that were still alive and screaming. And this went on literally for hours, people. This wasn't 10 minutes. It was absolutely atrocious what they did. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Charles Key and Chris Emery. Today's show, the Oklahoma City bombing, prelude to 9-11. On April 19, 1995, a massive bomb inside a rental rider truck and supplemental charges inside the Murrah Federal Building blew half of the nine-story building into oblivion, killing 168 people and injuring hundreds of others. Charles Key is a former representative in the Oklahoma State Legislature and chair of the Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee. The committee produced a 555-page final report detailing the scientific proof that the government's case is a fraud. Chris Emery is a documentary filmmaker. Together, they are producing a film about the bombing, the subsequent cover-up, and the blocking of an independent county investigation. The following presentation was given on July 24, 2005, as part of the D.C. Truth Convergence. Ten years ago, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. I got the biggest education in my life. The longer you live, you learn all kinds of things. You have all kinds of experiences. And when I look back ten years, it's hard to believe it's been ten years, I got an education you can't get anywhere else in a lot of different ways. Some of the important things, and I'm going to hit some highlights about facts, because one thing I've learned as time goes on, I've realized just how much people don't know about the Oklahoma City case. And what's interesting to me is even people in Oklahoma that have lived there all their life like I have. Ten years later, you'll find some people that don't know anything. And in Oklahoma City, we had a massive amount of covers that went on for a good I estimate about three and a half years, almost constantly, meaning weekly, sometimes daily, at least every other week, after the bombing happened and as the investigations occurred and the various coverage of that, the trials, the prep to the trials and that kind of thing. So it's interesting to me how much people don't really know about some of the basic facts, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But as I mentioned yesterday, you know, when it first happened, that very first day was very important. And as I began to meet and talk with experienced career investigators, with federal government, with local government, in the media, journalists, many of them told me over and over again, the first information, the very first information is always, in their experience, the most accurate and the most important. And so it was that first actual day, and then the next few days after that, that really tells the story about the Oklahoma City bombing and has continued to verify what we've learned after 10 years in spite of what the government has claimed. Some of those 
things that we've learned and some of those basic facts about the case include, as I mentioned again yesterday, I'll cover some of those again, is 1,034 fingerprints that were taken in this trial, in this case. That's the total number of fingerprints. The government never ran those fingerprints against their national database. Now, I've never heard that happening ever before. We've tried to discover if that's ever been done, much less is it somewhat common procedure from time to time. But they intentionally did not run the fingerprints. On the witness stand, one of the FBI agents that answered questions from the defense team said that his supervisors told him it was too expensive. They asked him how much it would cost. He said they estimated about $400,000. And this is after spending, of course, millions and millions and millions of dollars in man hours on this case. So we know that's, that's not true. And these are very important fingerprints. You know, McVeigh's car, Dreamland Hotel where he stayed, the Ryder truck rental shop, et cetera, et cetera. So the fingerprints are very important. The surveillance videos have become the other real important thing that most everyone tries to focus on as they try to focus on certain very important aspects of the case that we can you can really kind of hang your hat on. There were, it's been identified 24 surveillance videos that were taken in the case in the immediate area, including on the building of the Murrah building. As if this was the Murrah building, they had two cameras on the corners pointing right down into the street. Right across the street, there were a couple of others. There was a Southwestern Bell building farther north that had a camera that pointed towards the Murrah building. There was the Journal Record building, which was also immediately across the street. And then a Regency Towers apartment building over this way, just in the next block. All of those cameras are very important. And then another 16 or 18 other ones in the immediate area. Well, we found out later, Chris Emery, who's here today and will speak later, found out that there's about 500 more videotapes that they confiscated, certainly in the Oklahoma City metro area, but we're not sure where all those came from. But we happened to come across a video reproduction company in Oklahoma City that early on was contacted by the FBI and asked to give a bid on duplicating all this, and they got the bid. The FBI came in and they, were, they controlled it very, very much. There was always at least one agent there. They wouldn't let the recording people even go to the bathroom without an agent, you know, watching what they were doing. So there's a lot of other videos that are there. They've never released those. They fought every effort during the course of all the trials and an ongoing investigation. Of course, it's, there's an argument that can be made why they wouldn't release those. But even after all of the trials were over and the investigations finished, they still won't release those, and there's court battles going on even today that include the release of those surveillance videos, and they're still fighting those efforts. And another thing about the ongoing, quote, investigation, that's another thing that we dealt with with the government, particularly the federal government, is they'll have it both ways, and I suspect in the 9-11 case and in other cases, others have experienced the same thing, where they will talk out of both sides of their mouth. They will say, there's no more investigation going on. And then it could be later on in the same day in a different interview, or a week later, or a day later, and they said, yes, there's an ongoing investigation. Maybe that would be in response to a question about the surveillance videos or something. Well, we can't do that because there's an ongoing investigation. Well, which, which is it? Is there an ongoing investigation or not? And if they've caught and brought everyone to justice that's involved in this, which they've said over and over and over again, then why is there an ongoing investigation? Some of the other basic facts that I think a lot of people missed, never heard because of the parts of the country they live in, are this. And as we started collecting information 
and some of you probably are aware of this big 550-some-odd-page book. It's a report. It's not our story. It's actually a report format. It's all of the quality of information on the Oklahoma City case that should and would go before a grand jury or a trial jury. It's got affidavits. We've got tape recordings and or written affidavits, sometimes video affidavits of witnesses, experts that address the issue of the, the bomb and other aspects of the case. And the way we finally started dividing up the information, because as many of us collaborated together, there was this just wealth of information that was piling up. And it was getting confusing. It was difficult. Just as I've heard at this conference and elsewhere, people talk about 9-11 and the different theories and questions that everyone debates and wants to know. Was there a plane at the Pentagon or not, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. We had similar problems in the Oklahoma City case. But some of the things that are the hard facts that you can know are true are this. There's the issue of all of the eyewitnesses. And there's over 40 eyewitnesses to people that saw Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City the day of the bombing or in days before the bombing, and also ones that go back into the previous approximate week before the Oklahoma City bombing in Kansas, for example. In this body of witnesses, overwhelmingly, almost, I think literally to a person, verify that there were other people involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. Those witnesses saw either one person with McVeigh, some of them saw two, and some of them saw three, depending on when and where. I just mentioned some of them were in the morning of the bombing, some were the day before, some were in Kansas or on the route from Kansas to Oklahoma City in that week before the Oklahoma City bombing. So you have a lot of different places these witnesses were. One thing the witnesses do is they all agree, and they're not related to each other, which is very important, of course, as many of you understand and know. The witnesses don't contradict themselves. Now, as we all know that have looked into any case like this, you know that the feds or the establishment people will refute witness statements. They will put down witness statements. They'll claim that witnesses do contradict each other, and no doubt sometimes they can. But they will attack witness testimony and the credibility of witnesses because they don't want the witnesses, frankly, in my opinion, and I think it's clear to demonstrate this, because they don't want to use the witnesses. But this body of witnesses, the great majority of them are of a quality themselves that any prosecutor or defense attorney would kill to have them on their side on a witness stand. They are extremely credible, and their stories are well documented. They have nothing to gain. They're not publicity seekers. So there's this large body of witnesses. We documented that, and in this report, we document all those people, a lot of their names, where we could use their names. The other body of evidence that kept emerging was the evidence about prior knowledge. And to give some facts about that, but also give some insight I think everybody will appreciate and relate to, is when I first got involved in this, when all of us got involved in it, there were some family members that lost loved ones in the bombing that were involved, just a handful at the most, actually three people primarily were outspoken. When we first observed what was going on, we didn't have the benefit of having done this before or experienced anything like this. So while we thought we understood what we were seeing, a cover-up, at the same time, we were wondering, of course, are we seeing this correctly? Is this really going on? 
as we were also being attacked, you know, you have some self-doubts and you want to continue to check your facts, not make your mind up completely, that kind of thing. So there was this concern on our part about whether or not we were seeing this correctly. So as time went by and we realized that we certainly were seeing a major cover-up, during that time frame of that first, I would say, six months and year, and it continued on, they would use the things that we were observing and speaking to against us. For example, on prior knowledge, the information shows clearly with government documents, eyewitness testimony, including a number of government undercover agents and people of that nature, sometimes go by other names, that more than one agency in the government, ATF, FBI, at least those two had information that specific individuals were planning to blow up not only government buildings, but some of those individuals, they had information that they had staked out the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and some in Tulsa, and that they knew that they were planning to do this. Well, we would communicate that, that there was information that they had prior knowledge. To carry on that thought for a second, there was other information such as the fire department being contacted several days before the bombing, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol being contacted before the bombing by quite a good time frame before they were on some type of alert, and other evidences. So as we talked about these proofs of prior knowledge, then our opponents, which included, of course, folks in the government, one of our chief opponents became the governor of our state, Frank Keating, then they would respond, and I remember Frank Keating specifically responding. He would say, I can't believe that they would suggest that federal agents would leave all of these people to be innocently slaughtered, you know, use really dynamic language like that. And I'm certain that some of those people, particularly Keating and others, knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to interject as much emotion as they could and attack us for being ridiculous in the statements that we were making and being conspiracy theorists and saying things like we're really way out there on the edge. So that became a real battle right there. Then oftentimes the media would say, well, you think the government did it, or do you think the government did it? Or a local ABC affiliate said this two or three times, They'd say, Representative Charles Key today, who thinks the government blew the building up, did such and such, so that they would perpetuate this thing. So that was a problem we had to contend with. But the, again, the issue of, the, of prior knowledge, there's a wealth of information that there was a specific prior knowledge. There was an expectation that something was in play and going to happen. Let me tell you just one story, you'll find this very interesting. Right here in Washington, D.C., at Walter Reed Army Hospital, they received a call from they said, and we investigated this very thoroughly. We got tape-recorded statements from these people, and not affidavits, but we recorded it, which you can do in Oklahoma, by the way. You can't in some states. You can record a telephone conversation without getting the approval of a person on the other end in Oklahoma, and that's how we got this information recorded by tape. You're listening to former Oklahoma State Legislator Charles Key and documentary filmmaker Chris Emery. Today's show, The Oklahoma City Bombing, Prelude to 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
But one of the members of our committee that subsequently was formed as time went by is V.Z. Lawton. He was a survivor of the bombing, miraculously survived the bombing, Was worked for HUD, was on the seventh floor. V.Z.'s got a lot of German heritage. He goes over to Germany a lot. He's got a son that's in the military over there, so he'll go over there about once a year. He went over to Germany in 97, and he called me back by phone, and he said, he says, hey, I found something out over here that you're not, it's going to blow your mind. He said, I don't want to talk about it over the phone right now. I'll call you. I'll talk to you when I get back. I said, thanks a lot. You know, I really love that. When somebody does that, you're not going to be back for two or three weeks. <laughs> so, so he gets back, and here's what happened. He's, he's over there to visit his son, and, and in the meantime, he's taking a little side trip down the Danube and going over to see this stuff with other tourists. And there was a couple of, there was a number of Americans there, but he became friends with this gal that's about 40 years old, as I recall, worked at Walter Reed Army Hospital, was a captain in the Army, and she was there with her cousin from, I believe it was North Carolina. And so VZ lost some of his hearing in the bombing. So he does a lot of, huh, could you repeat that, excuse me, kind of stuff. And so he was doing that a lot, and they finally said something to him. They said, VZ, you need to get your ears checked. And, you know, just good-naturedly, and he goes, well, I was in the Oklahoma City bombing, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, everybody was interested about that. So they start asking him questions, you know, what was it like? Tell us about it. So he was telling them about the cover-up, some of these things we're talking about right now, and so the gal that worked at Walter Reed says, oh, I bet that's why we got that call. And he says, what call? Well, they get a call from somebody that represented themselves, and I'm going by memory now, but just look it up in the book to get the exact exact words, but it was Somebody representing, it was a liaison for the governor of Oklahoma and a liaison with a congressional task force, and they wanted to know what the proper treatment of blast overpressure victims was. What is the proper treatment of blast overpressure victims? And they called this specific department within Walter Reed Army Hospital in which that was their focus and their thrust. That was their discipline. And they studied uh, the effect by working on working with animals to find out. Well, the person that they typically would talk to was out when they called. So they ended up passing the phone call to a couple of different people, including the supervisor. When VZ gets back, we get on this track to track that down. We wanted to, everything that we tried to handle, we tried to handle it very carefully, professionally, so that we could avoid any criticism, for one thing, of not handling witness interviews and other information, but we wanted to clearly document it. So we start on this, and we had hired an investigator that lives up here in the D.C. area, and so he ended up doing some interviews with them, and we had another investigator that came up and did some interviews. Long story short, they had received this call. They verified it, and we documented this with both of the people that took the call, and the supervisor said, I even took some notes. When the call was passed to me, I talked to the person and took some notes, and they were supposed to call back, I think, the next day, and they ended up not calling back. Then the bombing happened, and the rest is history. Very interesting. But quality of evidence like that, actually a number of government documents that show they had prior knowledge. The other area we kind of broke the information down into a separate category was the bomb, the truck bomb. Some people call it the science, and that is... It includes all of these things. Could the Ryder truck, an ammonium nitrate bomb, whether it had diesel fuel or it had racing jet fuel, 
could it have done that much damage and that pattern of damage? Two very important aspects to this case and to this subject. Again, if this is the building, it was cut out. If you can kind of see roughly what I'm describing here, there was this deep penetration at this part of the building. Some people call it the horseshoe area. It went deep like this, and then it took out some of the face here and then went on and didn't damage some of the rest of this. Well, you had some, you had some columns and pillars that were taken out deep back here. The truck didn't line up directly with that deeper area. It was over here at this angle. And so the amount of damage is a very important subject in and of itself. The pattern of damage is likewise just as important. And so uh, some of the other people that spoke out, as many of you may know, are Brigadier General Ben Parton, lives in the D.C. area, has been considered for a long, long time, before the Oklahoma City bombing, to be the expert. I had a number of other experts tell me as I questioned them about General Parton. I said, do you know this guy? What do you think about him? He said, they would tell me over and over again, he's considered to be an expert's expert. He's had a long background in history on this. Well, when he heard the explanation of the alleged single truck bomb doing the damage, he said, wait a minute, something doesn't add up. He did his own report. We've included it in this report. He's really kind to do that for us. And a whole another, we could have put a book full of experts' testimony together. We put about five or six in this report. That was difficult for me for a long time to feel real comfortable about this issue of, well, were there other bombs? Could a truck bomb have done it, like the feds claim? And I'm not going to get into real detail about all of that. But um, I've decided that that subject in and of itself is real damning to the case. The general said that a bomb out front could not have done that deep of damage because the power of that bomb, I'm trying to speak in layman's terms because that's the only way I can really understand it. I don't have that background in, in those disciplines. When a bomb goes off, the pressure, the power of it, disseminates greatly as it goes out. So I would describe it if you've ever played with firecrackers. You get a black cap firecracker and you set it next to a paper cup, it may move that cup if you just kind of laid it right there next to it. And it may not. Even if you set it up right next to it, it still may not damage the cup. But if you took a rubber band or a piece of tape and you wrapped it onto the cup, then it would probably blow a hole in it. It's the same concept and it's the same physics. You can't take a stick of dynamite and just lay it in the building and it's going to take the building down. When they do demolition, they drill holes in the columns. Sometimes they may strap it onto columns, but they typically will drill into columns so that it will take it down. Well, you can't just put a bomb out in front of a building, no matter how big it is. Now, you may get to some size that it would obviously take out the building, but if it's 10 or 12 feet away from the main part of the building, in those columns, which are the main structural aspects of the building, even if it did take out some of the front ones, you've got this problem, well, how did it do this deep penetration over here? And why would it take out some columns back here, but not take out some of the ones up front that it was closer to? So you have that all these problems. And all of these experts just line up right behind Parton and say that it just can't work like that. It goes against the laws of nature. And some of the other proofs of this subject of the bomb not being able to do the damage to the building is that we have such a large body of evidence of other bombings, terrorist bombings. 
test bombs, test bombings that the government has done, and then a whole bunch of evidence from commercial application. So there's more than enough evidence to compare one bombing to another one and, again, the tests that have been done. So it's pretty, pretty strong evidence that they've got a big problem there. And, of course, what would other bombs in the building mean? Obviously, it means much more complicated and sophisticated operation and other people involved. So the other subject area that primarily we categorized was who did it? You know, who were the people involved? And that's what everybody wants to know. Well, who actually did it? And I have to still say to this day, I don't really know. Now, I want to say that, especially in way of relating to what we went through and what many of you have gone through or are still going through with the 9-11 case, and hopefully none of us have to see something like this happen again in the future, although we all fear that it may, but maybe it will help us. But there are differences in opinions in these subjects within 9-11, and we had the same kind of problems. You know, early on, the folks that told us they did this so that they could get the anti-terrorism bill passed back in 1995, there was a bill called the Anti-Terrorism Act that was not going anywhere. I mean, it was not even going to be considered because it was considered to be too radical by most members of Congress. Well, when the bombing happened, they were able to just rush it through. And it was a precedent to the Patriot Act and other legislation that's come after that. So there were people right away that added all this up and said, well, this is what, why this was done. We weren't ready to make that statement. In addition to that, I felt like, from my position, being in the legislature, it wouldn't really be a very wise decision to come out and say, well, this is obviously done because somebody wanted to pass a piece of legislation. You know, because you immediately fast-forward yourself into a conspiracy category and a radical category, and I didn't want to do that. We were trying to grasp onto that hard evidence and make them accountable for doing their jobs the way they're supposed to do and their failure to do it and then hold them accountable to the laws of the land and their oath of office. That's what we tried to do. So back to who did it, we still don't absolutely know all the answers to the Oklahoma City case, and we may never know. But we know a lot more, and my opinions have changed and evolved over time. Frankly, my two favorite theories and beliefs are that it was allowed to happen, and it was basically they did it, it was allowed to happen, to bring about change in government policy. Or it was a failed sting operation that was then covered up. And I know that was going to raise questions right there, but there's a, a lot of evidences of a sting operation that was in play and that it was under surveillance and that they had it under surveillance and something happened there at the very end. Somebody changed something so that it threw off those who were surveilling the perpetrators, the ones that wanted to carry this out. In other words, a sting operation that figuratively and literally blew up in their faces and everybody's faces. Then it happens. Then they have to go through a cover-up because they can't step forward and say, well, look, we were trying to stop this. We knew it was going to happen. Uh, you know, we were tracking these guys, and we just screwed up. Sorry. Because then the domino effect starts, and they start asking all these questions, and they find out, well, when did you know what and how long before, and why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Why did you let it come into a downtown heavily populated area right in the middle of business, people going to work and everything? So that is still a possibility, but I lean strongly in favor of someone allowed it or caused it to happen. And I happen to 
believe, I thought this early on, I started kind of getting this concept because one of our investigators termed this, came up with this term called evil genius. There's an evil genius behind this, meaning one or more persons. And it looked like there were two, again, two kinds of programs going on here. There was maybe this bigger conspiracy type of thing that was going on and that somebody actually put together and caused it. But then you have all this very strong evidence of prior knowledge that goes along with the sting operation and information that was being gathered and obtained by them, law enforcement agencies at all levels. And they were trying to, to find bombs or track someone and seemingly to stop them, thwart this effort. Well, I had a, a staffer with a U.S. senator tell me, there's not enough time to get into this story, but I had a staffer tell me that he knew, and I had to kind of work my way into talk to this guy, and he was very nervous, and um, I feel very strongly about the information that he gave me, that it's, it's accurate, true. He said he, he knew that the genesis, this was his words, the genesis of the Oklahoma City case began right after Waco by high ATF officials and other, some other government officials to put together a fake sting operation to just make them look good, because after Waco, they almost got axed because of Waco, or rearranged into the federal tree of agencies. And so they started putting together a fake sting operation to, you know, they were going to bust somebody and say, look what we did. We stopped them from what they were, you know, getting ready to blow up and kill a lot of people or whatever, something like that. And so the other thought that I've had, the other theory that I've had is that um, that there was a, this evil genius or someone, some group of people that knew that was going on and knew a lot of other things were going on, just like all of these undercover agents and folks like that are all over the country. You know, there's been a lot written about that for two or three decades and that they actually go inside a lot of these groups and they become provocateurs. They incite people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. And so if you're in the right place, you would know a lot about those kinds of folks, where they're at, what's going on, who's doing what, and it would be easy to allow something to progress and then maybe change an aspect of it so it actually does blow up literally and figuratively in everybody's faces. Well, you'd have people that really thought there was a surveillance going on and they thought that it actually blew up in their faces and they didn't know about others that were trying to manipulate it and change the deal. So it's really kind of one and the same, but I really think there are a lot of people that were involved in this that didn't know exactly what was going on. And there wasn't that many people that were involved in the real conspiracy. That's my two theories. You're listening to former Oklahoma State legislator Charles Key and documentary filmmaker Chris Emery. Today's show, The Oklahoma City Bombing, Prelude to 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let me introduce Chris Emery. Chris Emery has become a very good friend of mine. He uh, was like so many people, learned about the Oklahoma City case and some other things that kind of woke him up. He eventually moved to Oklahoma City, has been there for I don't remember how many years now, several, several years. And he's also a documentary film producer. He's become a real activist and expert on the Oklahoma City case in many ways. So let me give you Chris Emery. Thank you. Charles and I uh, had the opportunity to do a smaller version of this in Oklahoma City back on April 19th and 20th, and we were flattered to have the opportunity to be here. 
I myself, and I know I, I may be speaking for Charles, we were very impressed with the variety and, and the uh, quality of the speakers yesterday at Lafayette Park. And the irony that I saw standing side stage, knowing that there was enough evidence to indict a lot of very powerful people within and outside of the government. And we're literally only two blocks away from the White House. That was certainly uh, credible to our efforts and to the folks involved with the 9-11 case. So thank you very much for having us here. As a film and documentary producer, I've been in the film and entertainment and media business for over 18 years and started out eight and a half years as a sports photographer with Big Ten football in the NFL, so I had the opportunity to travel the U.S. Became acclimated to how the major networks disseminated their news. And I have to say, with all respect, a lot of my colleagues in the trenches, literally on the sidelines, uh, the ones that were doing the administrative work, showing up for work every day, did a very good quality job. It's the final decision makers, uh, the program directors, the station managers, and as Charles had alluded to earlier, the ones that run the story up the flagpole to New York or to Chicago or to the flagship stations, they're the ones that are responsible for what we see on TV today. And it was their, some of their decision-making that prompted me to leave my part-time work and contract work with CBS. So here I am as a film and documentary producer. I became interested in this case in uh, January of 2001. Ironically, by a good friend of mine who lives in Fort Worth, Texas, where I was living at the time, by the name of Jerry Longspaw, who has put out one of the DVDs that we have available. It was originally in video format called Cover Up in Oklahoma. Jerry had the great opportunity to edit a lot of the raw footage that was shot literally within 10 to 15 minutes of the bombing. First response from Channel 4, Channel 9, they in turn disseminated their, their feeds to a lot of the uh, Oklahoma stations and then on to CNN. And I verified that going into the state archives, and Charles and I have talked about this, if it wasn't for the Oklahoma State Archives, we thank them for saving a lot of this footage on their masters. We would really be remiss in a lot of the material that we're going to have for the documentary. Getting back to our particular project, we've been in pre-production now literally for 10 years. I came on board five years ago. Charles started within three weeks of the bombing. And we got to the point where there's so much information actually to rewrite, to write a second edition of this book that we thought, okay, you have two choices. You want to go ahead and do it in a book format or can we actually get this out on a DVD? And we chose to go the DVD route. Charles and I are actually co-producing this. We have to look at facts. That's the only thing that is going to make this thing work and, and make it credible. I have two prime examples. Basically, the writ of mandamus from McVeigh's defense lawyer, Stephen Jones, 154 pages. This was a pleading to the court dated March 25th of 1997, within three weeks of the start of the McVeigh trial. Solid evidence to show that this case was international. Judge Mace chose to refuse this writ. I, I don't believe any of this evidence was entered into court. What we thought would be a protracted defense counsel pleading for over three months ended up being, what, less than four weeks. It was astounding. This was the worst case of terrorism in the history of the country at the time. Judge Mace quashed this information. In addition, it was a 33-page report. It was issued in February of this year, of 1997, by the Office of the Inspector General, which clearly showed, and I don't have a copy with me, all of the forensic and physical evidence entered into court pertaining to the device, the explosive device, the damage to the building, and the subsequent investigation, the, the chain of custody of how that evidence was entered into the logbooks and the lab in uh, Washington, here at the FBI lab, was complete garbage. And I, I'm not using that term loosely. The Inspector General's office basically said it was unsubstantiated, unqualified, 
conjecture. The evidence just didn't hold up to the basic laws of science and law. And the federal prosecutors had the audacity to enter this into the court proceedings and convict an individual on murder charges. They uh, subsequently used a lot of that evidence in the Nichols trial. We found out that they came within, in the first round of votes, the jury, within one vote of acquitting Nichols of all counts. They took a second round of votes that came within two votes of acquitting him of all charges. So that clearly shows that the federal government had a very weak case. We're going to present that information in the film. And basically there's five points that, to this day, we would like to uh, have brought out to obtain closure for the victims and the family members. Have the Department of Justice and the FBI admit that there were serious mistakes made in the investigation of this case. Extend, present a formal apology to the people of Oklahoma City, victims, family members, and survivors, and to the people of the United States. They clearly lied about this case. And Charles has said this in previous uh, radio interviews and on TV and even our press conference we had on April 5th. We don't use the term lie very loosely. It is a clear and present and a very definitive way of describing how they treated this case. I remember I was on the radio with Stan Monteith out of California. And it says, uh, Stan, this wasn't a series of innocent mistakes. There weren't bumbling mistakes. This is a conscientious stream of pathological lies that the Justice Department and the FBI, the top decision makers, presented. And there's really no other way to look at it. it was, it's absolutely atrocious. And we see the same thing that happened with 9-11. The third point that we want the Justice Department to do is pay due compensation and restitution to the victim's family members. Because, like I said, this is clearly a case of international terrorism. It was planned in the Philippines, and it was carried out by certain members of the Abu Sayyaf and the Ramzi Youssef group that were complicit in the 93 World Trade Center case. Number four is to correct the official record of this case in U.S. history. And number five is once you obtain those first four uh, points, then you'll actually reach some uh, measure of closure for the case, and then you move on. That's about all I have for right now. We are going to do a Q&A, and then I guess move on. So anybody have any questions? Thank you, folks, for your time. I appreciate it. Now, if I can't, let me, let me just make a couple other comments, and then we'll take questions. But I want to clarify one or two things. But I want to say a couple things about Oklahoma City real quick. And I referred to this report that we did. And I would just want to, for your perspective, that, again, doesn't know much about the Oklahoma City case, just to kind of have a better perspective of how we got started and how this came about and what have you. You know, we didn't start, I didn't, none of us started by saying, you know, we're going to put together a report or write a book about this or do a video or a DVD or anything like that. What happened is I got involved. I mentioned some survivors and family members that got involved early on, and we started collaborating together. I finally decided as a legislator that this is something that you either get into all the way or you stay out of it. And I made that decision, and I had a press conference on June 30 of 95. General Parton was there. Some other scientists were there. And then the federal investigators let the indictments out in August. I believe it was August 8th of 95, so about a month or so later. At that point, it was very clear to us that there was a cover-up. We were kind of holding out hope that they were going to indict some other people and do something besides just go for Nichols and McVeigh. And so when that happened on August the 8th, it was a further revelation to us as we had various revelations as time went on about what was really going on with this case, that they were certainly covering this up. Right after that, about 30 days after that, we started hearing 
that there was this federal grand juror named Hoppy Heidelberg that some of you have heard about that have looked into this case that was kicked off the federal grand jury for asking questions that grand jurors are supposed to ask. <laughs> like, shouldn't we have some, maybe some scientists come in here and, and we can ask them some questions? How about some of those witnesses? Can we get some of those witnesses in here? How about, can we get some of the FBI in here and ask them some questions? And they, Mr. Heidelberg, uh, uh, we'll get to that stuff, we'll get to that. And finally, they said, Mr. Heidelberg, if you'll just put all your questions in a letter to Judge Russell, the federal judge presiding over that federal grand jury, we'll get those to him. He did that. I think we've got it in this report. But very good list of important questions to ask. His response from the judge was a very short little letter that said, Mr. Heidelberg, you're no longer a member of the federal grand jury, and if you talk about anything, you'll be prosecuted on each count for speaking. But he got outed is what happened. So we heard about that, and it was like another big thing that was happening along the way that was supporting the whole effort. I'd been real involved in grand juries, and my kind of favorite subject in the legislature, my area of concentration was in criminal justice, particularly constitutional law and jury and courtroom procedures. And I was aware of Oklahoma's unique law that allows citizens through a simple petition to have a grand jury impaneled if they feel like there's some wrongdoing. So I said to Glenn Wilburn, this is something we ought to explore and do. So in October of 95, we began that effort. It was thwarted for a period of time. We had to go to the courts to fight the battles to just simply pass a petition that Again, another long story. In the course of the next couple of years, we ended up then making some trips to Congress to talk to not only some of our delegation, but other uh, sympathetic members of Congress. Some are gone, they've, for whatever reasons, and some, a few still there. And in the course of those trips that we made up here to D.C., it was suggested to us that we put all of the information that we were gathering into some kind of a report form and submit it to them. And we had begun to think about that. We were also having this grand jury impaneled. We knew that we were going to be the source of the information that they were going to receive, that the feds or the local authorities were not going to do the investigation and provide them with the information. Of course, they subsequently did control that. So that's how this came about, is we, at some point after the grand jury had been impaneled and met, we started compiling this and thought it would be a never-ending project. We finally had to say, time out, it's over, let's write it down and get it out there. So that's how that came about. Ironically, that was released in 10 days of 9-11. Before 9-11. We got it from the printer to issue publicly as best we could. We had a Christian radio stations in North Texas within Oklahoma, some of the independent media that were willing to help us distribute this book. Ironically, um, I was a former student at UW-Madison. Uh, UW-Madison Press wanted to take this book. 9-11 happened, our emails, our phone calls, nothing was returned. We'll take some questions here in about two seconds. I could tell a lot of story and experiences in that regard, but yes, they did come after me. They were successful, finally, in 1998 in defeating me. Just to hit some high points on that, it was, again, June 30th of 95. It was very controversial. The coverage in Oklahoma was very constant. It was across the state constantly. In both major newspapers, all the TV, it was just constant publicity. And I had a name ID probably equal to any other state politician, the governor or anybody else, for a good period of time because I was just in the news. There's this one guy that popped his head up. In 96, they tried to get somebody to run against me, and they couldn't, Democrats or, and I was a Republican, 
couldn't get anybody to run against me. And the Republicans wanted to get somebody to run against me too. So it was at the height of the controversial time, and I won that election by 75 to 25. And I only mention that by way of how that reflects on what my constituency thought and other people. And I usually won elections, you know, as I'd been in there for a few terms by anywhere from 60, but typically around 65, 68 percent. So I wasn't on the edge. People weren't unhappy with me, and they weren't mad at me for getting involved in this. What happened in the next election is they got real organized. The Republican governor that we had, who was a longtime federal agent in the FBI and other agencies, Frank Keating, our attorney general, who was a Democrat, and others in Oklahoma, including the major newspaper, they started on this systematic effort just hounding me. We had one of the newspaper reporters that was assigned. She told me, I'm assigned to you and your committee. And they had this systematic series of stories that would come out implying and indicating and asking the question, is Key misusing his office? And so they eventually got that done. They got me in a runoff and then beat me in the runoff. So yeah, they, they came after me. You're listening to former Oklahoma State legislator Charles Key and documentary filmmaker Chris Emery. Today's show, The Oklahoma City Bombing, Prelude to 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In an Oklahoma City case? Well, what we know, we know that you had an informant named Carol Howe out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who worked for the ATF, and she was infiltrating Elohim City, which is a community. They call them a compound like Waco. That was a group of, you know, right Christian identity movement folks. And then they had some more radical people that would associate with them. And they also had Andreas Strassmeyer, a German who had come to this country, was a high-ranking military official, comes from a family that has a lot of political connections, father worked for Helmut Kohl. He came to this country There's no question in my mind he was working either with the knowledge of our government or for our government, in addition to probably the German government. He had become the head of security in Elohim City. Back to the ATF, they're surveilling for a long time folks in that little community. Carol Howe, in one of the many reports, and we've included this in here, you can read it yourself, uh, the ATF's own report says that Andy Strassmeyer is inciting everyone to, quote, carry our war against the government to a higher level and start blowing up government buildings, assassinating politicians, and creating mass shootings, end quote. The ATF began to put together a sting operation, Strassmeyer being the target because he was saying those things. He was an alien that was now had become an illegal alien and also was in possession of firearms and weapons that were illegal for him to be in possession of. This is all before the bombing. There is one of the documents, one of the ATF field reports that shows that ATF agents had come up, uh, higher-ups had come up from Fort Worth to do a flyover with the agent that was overseeing the sting operation. And the pilot of the plane was an Oklahoma Highway Patrolman. They were flying a state plane. They do the flyover, take some pictures, whatever they do. And in the report it shows, it records that the ATF agent overseeing the sting operation then has a conversation with the Highway Patrolman, in which the Highway Patrolman, it probably went something like this. Well, you know that the FBI has got their own informant inside their Elohim city, don't you? And she said, no. She probably said, blankety blank blank no. You know, what are you talking about? And in her next entries in this report are, I immediately went to my supervisor, Dave Williams in Tulsa, to inform him of this. He said, well, we must go immediately to the federal prosecutor 
attorney in the Tulsa district, Steve Lewis, who I used to serve with in the Oklahoma House, and inform him of this. The next entry is then they decide in these meetings, we better talk to the head of the FBI, Bob Ricks of Waco fame, in head of the FBI in Oklahoma. We find out later in court records that had to do with Carol Howe later on that it was the FBI in that meeting called off the ATF from carrying out that sting operation six weeks before the Oklahoma City bombing. Probably would have stopped the Oklahoma City bombing, at least at that time. Well, why did they call it off? What was going We don't know, but in some interviews, Bob Ricks has indicated, practically said, well, we didn't want another Waco to happen. So looking at it from their perspective, from the apologist perspective and from the establishment perspective, they could have thought, well, if we go in there, it could turn into a nasty thing. It could backfire. It could go really go wrong. So we're going to tell them to back off. We're going to surveil and watch this thing. We've got our own people in there, too, et cetera, et cetera. And then it does, again, blow up figuratively and literally in their face. Possible. There's a lot of problems with that, but it does make a lot of sense in one context. So we'd really like to know, all of us, of course, would like to know what went on in that meeting and meetings like that and other things that we've discovered along the way in this case, and other cases like 9-11. But that's some insight I've got there on that. A lot of you don't know that there is a lawyer out of Dallas by the name of Harmon Taylor who actually sued on behalf of two of the survivors from the bombing. He filed a lawsuit in uh, May of 2001. It was actually three days before McVeigh was supposed to be executed, his original date of execution. And his lawsuit was a small part of the overall effort to have that stay. It went through the U.S. District Court in Terre Haute, and the judge denied the motion. It had to go to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago. And Harmon told me that was the fifth time in the history of that court in 128 years that they actually had to work on the case over the weekend. They were mandated to do that. Three-judge panel clearly stated in a two-and-a-half-page ruling, and typically he says, Chris, they normally give you a three- or four-sentence ruling, and they show you the door and which way to go. He said, I was astounded to get a two-and-a-half-page response from the court. They said, you have merit on this case. You are following the lines of the U.S. Constitution, but you are dealing, quote-unquote, and this was astounding to read two sentences, you are dealing with the federal government. Therefore, your pleadings do not apply to this government. We affirm the ruling that we will uh, deny your request and McVeigh will be executed within 48 hours. Absolutely astounding. We got hit between the eyes of the two-by-four on that. This is what we're dealing with, people. It's the reality of the government that we have. It is a parallel government to what we actually thought we have with the U.S. Constitution. Therefore, we, we're not playing by their rules, quote-unquote, if we are trying to get progress through the U.S. Constitution. So anyway, I just wanted to add that. Some of us have privately talked the last couple of days in little groups, and there are some of the same players in the Oklahoma City case that's popped up in the 9-11, like Jamie Gorlick. I was doing an interview, I don't remember when it was, 95, 96, and went to the University of Oklahoma to do an upfeed, there was the other person they had come down. There was an assistant DA at the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. After the interview, we got to talking, and he uh, mentioned some things to me, reluctantly said some things to me. And the more we talked, it seemed like he got more interested and was hearing some things from me that he wasn't complete, he wasn't aware of at all about the case. He was kind of compartmentalized like so many people are in, in government. One of the things he said to me, he goes, well, I can tell you who's really running and making the decisions in the Oklahoma City case. And I said, who's that? And he said, it's Jamie Gorlick, Merrick Garland, and I apologize, I've forgotten the third person. Well, Gorlick worked for the Clinton administration, was a good friend uh, and a good friend of Hillary Clinton's, I understand. Merrick Garland, 
also was in the Justice Department, and they were calling the shots. I set that up to say this. I mentioned the county grand jury that we began to process to have him paneled. It took us a year and a half after we filed the petition to circulate the petition, which happens up to that point in time in Oklahoma on a regular basis. You'll have a grand jury. Citizens just get a piece of paper, pass it around, sign your name on this thing, and go to the court. So here it is. Here's our signatures. Impanel the grand jury to investigate this county prosecutor or the county sheriff for embezzling funds or whatever. Happens pretty frequently. We did that in Oklahoma City. We had a judge immediately pop up and put an injunction to stop that. Won't go into great detail of that, but it caused us to have to either accept defeat right then or engage in a time and money effort to fight it. Well, we fought it and we won unanimous decisions at the appeals and Supreme Court in Oklahoma at every step. And they even chastised the district attorney's office who had to represent this case for them. When we won the first level at the appeals court level, it was on Christmas Eve of 96, we got the decision and it was a published decision also setting precedent. We called the district attorney, his name was Bob Macy at the time, our attorney, Glenn Wilburn, who's now deceased, the grandfather that was involved in this. We were the primary people and we had our, our little conference and, and they said to me, why don't you get a hold of Macy, let's see what he's going to do, because he's going to keep fighting this thing. And there's a 20-day clock where he can appeal it that's ticking. So I call him, we talk, and he says, I don't think I'm going to do this. He's a pretty political guy. I'll tell you one thing one time, something else later. He says, I don't really think I want to do this, but let's get back together after the holidays. Get back together for the holidays. And well, actually, he never called me back. We got one day before the 20-day clock ticks is over. Talking to my attorney, he goes, why don't you just call that guy right now and find out what he's going to do? You know, it doesn't look good. So I call him. It's late in the afternoon, about 4.30, almost 5 o'clock. I call him up and say, Bob, I said, well, you haven't got back with me. What are you going to do? Are you going to file this thing? Are you going to pursue it? And he says, he was kind of silent. And he says, yeah, I'm going to have to do that. Uh, said something to that effect in the affirmative. And that kind of charged me up, kind of pushed a button with me. And I said, well, Bob, I said, why are you going to do this? I said, you know, all the case law is in our side. The law is in our side. I said, why don't you just give it up, give up your writ, and let it, let it go. Kind of a little bit of silence there. And he says, I can't. They won't let me. Set a meeting up next first thing in the morning at his office, big conference table about seven of his assistants around, and one of them was an investigator. Meeting kicks off, Macy, big old guy, he's known as kind of like a, has a little bit of a nickname around Oklahoma as the hanging judge, wears a western tie, you know, big guy, supposed to be tough on crime and everything, and he's sitting next to me. And Macy starts talking, and he says, well, I guess I called this meeting, and we'll get it started, and says a few things, and he says, Representative Key, you have something you want to say? And I said, well, you know, all the case laws on our side, the law is on our side. We think the only thing to do is for you to drop your writ of certiorari, I think it's called. I said, that's the only thing to do. And he, big old guy, he took a big deep breath, shocked me what he did, the same thing again. Took a deep breath and kind of sat back in his seat and he goes, I can't, they won't let me. I said, I can't believe you're saying that right here in front of everybody. You told me that yesterday. I think we deserve to know who they are. And it seemed like forever, I don't know how long it was, but I said it again, I said, Bob, who are they? And just silence. And then he finally started talking about not who they were, he just started talking when we got into the case and debated it all one more time and finally got up and left and said, okay, see you later, you'll see you in court. 
Well, who are they? It goes up the ladder from talking to a longtime ATF number two man, a guy named Tom Sanders, who testified on Carol Howe's behalf when they tried to prosecute her to shut her up. And thank God that jury saw through that and wouldn't allow it to happen. But we talked to him at that trial because he was one of the expert witnesses. We asked him the question, how far up the ladder does this go, these kinds of situations, informants, and cases like this? And he said, these cases are not dealt with at the state level, like with Bob Ricks. Of course, they're involved in it, but the major and important decisions are done all the way up to the Justice Department and in the White House. But the real important thing is who knew it, who was knowledgeable about the cover-up. And it goes back to the executive branch. And one last thing I'll say to qualify, I've come to believe, as a Republican, it's not about Democrats and Republicans. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to Charles Key and Chris Emery. Today's show, The Oklahoma City Bombing, Prelude to 9-11. Charles Key was elected to the Oklahoma House of Representatives and served six consecutive terms from 1986 to 1998. He is chair of the Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee. Chris Emery is a film and documentary producer. Together, they are producing a film about the April 19, 1995, bombing of the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. Visit the website www.okcbombing.org or call 405-470-1231 for more information. That's www.okcbombing.org or call 405-470-1231. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?